Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. So I'm reading the gospel tonight, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. We are in the middle of a worship series that spans several weeks during Eastertide, the season between Easter and Pentecost Sunday. The series is called Breathing Together. We are doing a lot of that tonight. Uh, Breathing Together, the co-conspiracy of Galileo Church. Every year on Pentecost, a movable feast in the Christian calendar, the co-conspiracy, which is sort of like the membership of Galileo Church opens up. Everybody who was a co-conspirator in the year just passed, it goes away, and everybody gets a chance to say yes for another year, or maybe your first year, of prioritizing the mission and the missional priorities of Galileo Church. And if you want to know more about the co-conspiracy, there's a little green card sticking out of those signs on the tables among you that has a QR code on it. That QR code will take you to a document that describes the co-conspiracy, and if you are online, I'm hoping somebody will go find that and put the link in the chat for you. The practices we have been over together so far during worship are the contemplation of our baptism, past or future, the sharing of material resources to further the church's goals, Cultivation of spiritual gifts for the life of our church and our community. That's the night that Savannah Brooks was here preaching. And then last week, participation in the church's discernment of our next steps together. So every week we're taking one of these practices of the co-conspiracy and just thinking together about what it looks like, what it means. Tonight we're talking about one of those practices, the extension of the church's welcome to friends, neighbors, strangers, and enemies. Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and every place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go on, Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will come back to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Don't move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there, and then say to them, the reign of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. 
But know this, the reign of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Maybe you have heard the part of Galileo Church's origin story that goes like this. In 2011 and 2012, about a dozen of us, give or take two or three, and depending on if you counted my two kids, which were the only kids back then, had been getting together in various living rooms around Arlington and Fort Worth and Mansfield for months and months, seasons and seasons, to eat and drink together, to read and talk and argue about the Bible together, to share our lives and pray for each other. And we really loved it. We really loved it, those Thursday nights of vulnerable, intimate conversation, knowing somehow that God was in this mix, drawing us close to God's heart as we became so much closer to each other. We loved it so much that we sometimes thought about how sad it was that other people didn't have something like this a community of trust, a community of beloveds, a family of choice where the deepest hopes and fears of their hearts could be expressed and held, where the impossible possibility of God could be seriously considered in a framework of generous orthodoxy and skeptical, curious, faith-ish. We loved it so much that we started to ask the question, what would it take to make this available to more people? Because see, the, the living rooms were not big enough to hold anybody else. The infrastructure we had built was insufficient for the crowd to grow. So one night, the 12 of us, give or take a couple, decided we had to break it. We had to break our intimate, vulnerable, beautiful Galileo in half. Two groups of six, give or take, one or two, would meet in two living rooms from there on out so that there would be more room for people who weren't here yet. So Jesus looks around at the disciples who've been following him around the Galilean and Judean countryside, and he says, okay, this is great, y'all are terrific, but we are not all here yet. Like he's doing this weird math that includes invisible people, people he hasn't met, people he imagines are more or less happily at home, just doing their thing. He's guessing that some of them, some of the ones he doesn't know yet, are hungry and thirsty, maybe for justice, maybe just for food. And some of them are in need of healing and health. And some of them need the companionship of trusted friends who will listen to their despair and stay by their side when they're seriously sad. Some of them would be really happy, just really relieved 
to hear that God is still at work, still making stuff happen, still bending the arc of the moral universe toward justice. So he says to his followers, the ones who are already here, he says, we got to go find them and tell them and invite them to this, this reign of God party bus. We're all peddling together. Now, there are a lot of things to love about Jesus. He's smart and snarky. He's fun and funny. He has a reputation as a drunkard and a glutton because he never met a party he didn't like. He doesn't back down from a fight just because it makes people uncomfortable. He takes the time to really look at the human being right in front of him and really see them. But here in chapter 10, Luke presents a side of Jesus that is not often highlighted, maybe because not everybody finds it as sexy as I do. Jesus, the administrator. Huh? Uh-huh. I do love a man with a plan, a man who is caught up on his emails, a man who systematically makes a list and systematically checks things off. This is the Messiah for me, the one who says, so I've been thinking about it, and here's what we're going to do. And he unfolds a giant map of the territory running the whole length of the Jordan River, north to south, Galilee to Judea, Capernaum to Jerusalem. He smooths it out on the table and he starts circling all the little townships he hasn't visited yet, still imagining all the people he hasn't met yet. And he tells his disciples, partner up. Find somebody they can work with. He gives each pair an assignment. Now, apart from knowing their route, he says, just learn the route, he says, because there's not going to be much preparation otherwise. Now, I'll confess this is not my favorite part. I am a consummate overpacker. I am already collecting the stupid amount of stuff I'm going to be taking on vacation in a few weeks. But Jesus' plan is the opposite of overpacking. His envoys, he says, should take with them Nothing. I mean, basically, only their own bodies. Nothing in their hands. Nothing on their feet. Nothing in reserve. Nothing for just in case. They'll go with nothing. Vulnerable and dependent on the kindness of strangers. Because this is essential for the work he has in mind. What they're going to do is... They're going to find out who's ready for this reign of God stuff that he does. Who is predisposed to listen and respond and have their lives changed by the justice and love and mercy and abundance he's going to bring. It's kind of wild to think about, really, that Jesus figures there are some people who are ready to hear about it and some who are not. And like he says in another place, he won't throw his pearls before swine. He won't preach, teach, heal, help where people aren't kind of needful of that and soft in their needfulness and open to the possibility he poses. And the test is, I mean, the way he's going to know if he should plan to spend time in this town or that with these people or those is whether they meet a kind of minimum standard of hospitality for strangers who travel with nothing in their hands. You go out with nothing. And if they welcome you, he says, 
If they offer you some supper and a place to spend the night, terrific. Put a check mark by that place, stay a couple days, heal the ones you can, and tell them I'll be there soon. Tell them the reign of God is on its way. God is in the process of getting everything God wants, and they can have some more of that if they want it. But if they don't welcome you, he says, if they don't pull up a chair at the dinner table, if they don't make some room for you to spend the night, then don't waste your time. On your way out of town, you can tell them they've missed their chance if it makes you feel any better. You can tell them that the reign of God almost came to their town, but we won't bother them any further. And then, listen, don't let it bug you. Shake off the dust from the feet they would not wash and ease on down the road to the next place on the map. Now, he's telling them to shake it off like it's not a big deal, but honestly, honestly, it kind of makes him mad just thinking about it. You can tell that he's mad because he brings up Sodom. Bum, bum, bum. I mean, Sodom is a place in the Bible that only gets brought up when God's prophets are just really, really pissed, seriously mad. You know Sodom, right, from Genesis 19? The place that our ancestors said that God smote along with its twin city, Gomorrah, smote hard from the sky with sulfur and fire, burned it all the way up because they were just awful. And Jesus says, these places that won't welcome you, these places who won't adhere to the basic minimum standard of decency toward traveling strangers, well, <laughs> when God gets everything God wants, it's going to make what happened to Sodom look like a garden party. Now, incidentally, this story about Jesus talking about Sodom is just one of the reasons that we, Christians, have had to rehabilitate our understanding of what happened way back there in Genesis 19 concerning the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The thing that pissed God off to the point of lighting divine farts over those cities. <laughs> Sulfur and fire, think about it. It was not their annual pride parade. It was not their marriage equality act. It was not their high school GSAs. It was their violent protectionism. Their refusal to open their homes and share their stuff with travelers who brought nothing. The sodomites were completely ready to assault and abuse God's own messengers and run them out of town on a rail, terrorized but left alive to spread the word to other travelers to stay the hell away from those towns. They're bad news. Sodomites loved their stuff and their security more than they loved their neighbors, see? And God just cannot stand that. God will fart in your general direction and set it on fire over that kind of petty, greedy, tight-fisted meanness. The Bible says so. So beware. If you build walls to keep strangers out, if you deploy military forces to threaten violence to travelers at your border. If you use a pandemic as an excuse to keep brown and black-skinned refugees on the other side, but let white refugees cross the same boundaries on expedited visas. 
If you suggest withholding formula from strangers' babies in favor of feeding your own, well, you're gonna make Jesus mad and he is gonna recall Sodom and the rain of stinky sulfuric fire from God's ass. And he's gonna say, you'll wish you had been there instead of where you are, <coughs> governor's mansion. If you subscribe to a racist ideology of replacement theory that says that you and your kind are in danger of being supplanted on land that you somehow imagine is yours by right because you're white and they're not. If you perpetuate a lie like that and you turn scared, insecure men into mass murderers for that lie, watch out. Sulfur and fire for Sodom, but better for Sodom than for you when God gets everything God wants. Anyway, back with Jesus and the 70 and the plan and the danger, the triple threat inherent in this plan. Danger number one, for those vulnerable disciples going out with empty hands and bare feet, carrying nothing but a promise that life can be better than this. If you get with some people who are getting with Jesus, who is always trying his hardest to get us with God. <laughs> See, it'd be so much easier to just keep it small. Just keep it between us. Keep it quiet. Keep it in the living room. Keep your thoughts to yourself. Don't tell anybody where you go to church or even that you go to church or why it matters so much to you. Because if you tell people what matters to you, they can hurt you with it. It is dangerous to go out there with nothing but the truth in your pocket. Danger number two, for those self-protective people who just don't get it, that life with God calls us to that kind of vulnerability, that you cannot be both armored up against your neighbor, doors locked against strangers, assuming everyone not like you is your enemy, and be simultaneously on God's good side. Because God doesn't have sides or doors or borders. God does not have a self-protective bone in God's body. And if you do, watch out. That bone will have to break for you to enter the reign of God. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It is possible, God can do it, but it's not pretty or even identifiable as a camel once it's through on the other side. Danger number three. And this one I am extrapolating from the task the 70 have been given in Luke 10 and from my own experience. Later on, when you look around and you realize that we are not all here yet, that there are those still uninvited, still unaware, still waiting for something they know not what, maybe still imagining that Sodom was gay and that's why God was so mad at them and therefore God must be mad at them too. And then you realize that sitting here in our safe silo, our blissful barn is not gonna get them here. It's not gonna get the good news that God's reign means God gets everything God wants and what God wants is you, all of you. When you realize that the infrastructure we've built is at its limit and we're gonna have to think of ways to make more room, maybe we even have to break it. Somehow that's when it hits you. 
that if they come, all the ones who aren't here yet, we won't be the same anymore. By definition, when they become us, the we that we have been will be different. And you will look around this space on Sundays in the barn or in that chat, and you will realize that you don't know half the people in the room. And you'll tell an old joke about duck-sized horses or an eight-and-a-half idea, and you realize that people aren't laughing because they have not heard that one yet. And your G group will have new people in it around that living room, people who have not already read everything by Rachel Held Evans or Nadia Bowles-Weber, who have not already listened to Blue Baby's Pink or told their spiritual autobiography three times or eaten Francine's famous pasta salad. And I say unto you, that when this happens, when you recognize that you are breathing together, co-conspiring, inhaling and exhaling the spirit of the living Christ with people who were not here before and now they are, or when you realize that a year ago in last Eastertide and in the year before that, and in the year before that, going back nine years, the Galileo Church has been considering what it means to extend the church's welcome to friends, neighbors, strangers, and enemies, breaking our infrastructure again and again and putting it back together in order to make more room, packing in that booth to UTA, redesigning the website, getting on TikTok, rebuilding our ever gayer parade float, mounting cameras to this impossibly high ceiling, and spending more money than we had at the time to put it all online, and thinking about all the ways we can do church for people who are not here yet. Well, that used to be you. You, that we were imagining before we met you. Because something had happened to us that was the best thing ever, and we could not imagine not telling you about it even before we knew who you were. When all this happens, church, rejoice. Rejoice. And then let Jesus, with his map and his pencil, rev up your imagination for the places we are meant to go next. There are people we have not met yet, so many more people who just might be ready for some real good news. Hey, church. I'm Lance, he, him. And uh, Katie said, to make sense of what I'm going to say tonight, you should know that I'm Katie's spouse, and that uh, maybe, woo! And uh, <laughs> that I'm an amateur carpenter, that might help make sense of this. The first thing we needed was a table. Build us a table, she said, because that's the first thing we need. Later, other things would become necessary. Old shipping pallets broken down into their component parts re-emerging finally as a prayer wall, a place to talk to God. But before all that, the first thing we needed was a table. We needed a sign pointing the way across the long line to the rented house. Then 
When they kicked us out, the sign, like us, was deconstructed and then reconstructed again into something more useful. These crates, you see them under speakers now. We built those originally to carry our shit in that itinerant season when everyone kicked us out. But before that, before the crates, the first thing we needed was a table. For kicks, we cut the giant wooden blocks out of a long six by six, found it at Home Depot. We slow roasted the sap out of them in the oven, and then we put shellac on them while she dreamed up the wording of the good news she would write on them. But before all of that, the first thing we needed was a table. Of course, we would need a cross, big and hollow and weird, made of air and the weather-gray cedar of a collapsed fence so it could travel light on the roof of a Subaru. Later, an invisible matrix of fishing lime was added that was to hold and support resurrection flowers that filled the emptiness every single spring. But before the cross, the first thing we needed was a table. Even the baptistry could wait a bit, its cattle trough core hauled across the Metroplex in a borrowed F-350 and transformed one Saturday afternoon by Mark and me into what can fairly be described as a jacuzzi for the Lord. <laughs> but before all of that, she said, build us a table because that's the first thing we need. And even before this literal table was built, there was the table of Malcolm's living room and the table of our old house on Hampton from the beginning, the table was essential. We would gather there and talk and eat and dream of the people that were to come. And no, I didn't know she was going to say that tonight, but it's true. The people that would someday join us around the table. And now here we are. But not all of us. The table is a constant reminder that we are not all here yet. It is always calling people we don't yet know. It is the bearer of a sacrament, the transformer of elements, a harbinger that the little we see before our eyes in this moment is not all there is in the imagination of God. The table has a mind of its own because the table is not really ours at all even if we think we built it with our own hands. It was here before any of us got here. In the old stories, even before there was a cross, there was a table. He'd reclined there with friends, neighbors, strangers, and enemies alike. He'd eat and he'd drink, He'd tell stories and spin riddles. He'd laugh and tell jokes and make predictions. And I suppose he'd wonder about the people who were to come, all the people who were not there yet, 
all the people that would eventually receive the news he proclaimed as the very best news. The first thing, even from the very beginning, the first thing was a table. So the table was there from the beginning, and we do this in his remembrance. But the table is also an anticipation, a looking forward to the many still to come and gather around it, the many we do not know yet. And somehow, in the mystery of God, the table is also a looking forward to a time beyond time when it will be possible to say at last, after all, here we all are, every last one of us. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.